Welcome to the Burden and Blessing Podcast, a study and discussion forum on the truth of God's Word. Our review series examines books, movies, music, and other media in the light of God's truth. We pray that it will be eye-opening, instructional, and beneficial for your daily walk with Christ. Welcome back to Burden and Blessing uh, and our hymn study today. Uh, this is Pastor Rob Sowers with you, and I'm joined this morning by Pastor Nathaniel Mayhew. We're going to go through an Easter hymn, a hymn that is very specific to a text, John chapter 21, which we'll talk about that text as we go through our study. The hymn is in our worship supplement, 735, Long Before the World is Waking, also in the Lutheran service book, if that's the hymnal that you use, uh, 485. And uh, Nathaniel, how are you today? Looking forward to getting into an Easter hymn. We haven't done a lot of Easter hymns, Rob, in our series on hymn studies. So these are very encouraging, obviously very uh, focused on the hope that is ours as a result of Christ's death and resurrection. It's nice to be able to take one of these up, especially this one. This is one of my favorites. I think I kind of find that... You use Easter hymns on Easter, and then they seem to kind of fall off, and you never touch that section of the hymnal again until after. Now, with this particular hymn that we're looking at today, though, it is very, very specific to that text in John chapter 21, and so would be a text that you would use after Easter Sunday, but still during that Easter season, which lasts for seven Sundays anyway. Um, So let's... Well, let's maybe start by talking about the author of this hymn, uh, Timothy Dudley Smith. This is uh, actually a 20th century hymn, and so a pretty modern uh, hymn uh, and uh, hymn writer here. Absolutely. And this was not translated. No. It was written in English. English. So not only is it a modern hymn, but Timothy Dudley Smith was an Anglican priest, so he wrote in English. I believe, Rob, that he is still alive. He was born in 1926, and I believe that he would be 95, I believe. I, I have not heard that the Lord has taken him home. So he was, he was a very prolific English hymn writer. He has written many, many hymns. The one hymn that is probably most familiar of all in our circles would be his Palm Sunday hymn, No Tramp of Soldiers Marching Feet. This one, too, has just some very contemplative music to it. Not a familiar hymn, not like No Tramp of Soldiers Marching Feet, but my hope is that by having this hymn study, it introduces this beautiful hymn to some of our listeners. Beautiful. As you pointed out, generally, you will not hear this on Easter Sunday. Right. Because it's not a typical Easter hymn that talks about the resurrection and its meaning. Rather, this is a historical narrative hymn. It is simply describing one of the resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples and then giving us some application of that resurrection appearance. How does that still have meaning for us today? Uh, so from that, from that standpoint, like you said, it goes nicely with John chapter 21 and gives us a lot of a lot of things to think about as far as Jesus still being with us today. Right. And this is such a neat text anyway, from John chapter 21, as we'll go through here. And as, and as Dudley Smith really points out nicely, because in a sense, though, it's a different sort of transition period 
uh, or, or a different, I should say, in-between period where the disciples are in, they're sort of in between Jesus' resurrection and they've seen him and all that. And when he's going to uh, rise into heaven, the ascension, and then, of course, Pentecost, where they really get the full picture. Well, we're in this in-between time also, where we're in between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. And so that's where we're going to see the parallels that, again, Dudley Smith brings out uh, quite well. Um, I think probably the best way to go about this is to just get right into the hymn, and we'll talk about some of those aspects of John 21 as we go through, which, of course, uh, as we'll see, as we've talked about already, this hymn very, very closely based on John 21. So. We'll start in we, with oh oh go ahead go ahead. Well, before we go into verse one, it might be helpful to just kind of give our listeners an overview of what John twenty one is. Oh sure, it, it okay. isn't one of the most familiar resurrection appearances either. We're no. familiar with the resurrection appearance on Easter Sunday, and then a week later with Thomas there. The Bible tells us that this is the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples, and this time he appears to them in Galilee, on the shores of Galilee. One of the other reasons that it's not as familiar is it's only recorded in John's gospel. He's the only one that has this resurrection appearance. But it tells the story of how the disciples are waiting for Jesus to appear while they're now up in Galilee. And Peter gets a little bit antsy. Mm -hmm. And so he says, hey, I'm going to go fishing again. The other disciples were told that there are six others that are with him. They said, we're going to go fishing with you. So they go out, they fish all night long. And then Jesus appears to them early in the morning as they're packing up their boat and getting ready to, to pack it in for the day. And then we have a series of miracles that take place along the way. And all of these things are going to bring the disciples back to the fact that this guy that they can't see on the seashore, this has got to be Jesus. We know simply by what is happening here. And so then Jesus reveals himself to them in this account. And this hymn, like we mentioned earlier, this, this historical narrative is going to retell this resurrection appearance event. And then in the last couple of verses, we'll get, what does this mean for us? What's the application of this resurrection appearance? As you pointed out, since we are in between the resurrection or ascension of Jesus and his return in the last day, what is there for us to benefit from too? All right, so let's go into stanza one then. Long before the world is waking, morning mist on Galilee, from the shore as dawn is breaking, Jesus calls across the sea, hails the boat of weary men, bids them cast their net again. So take us into verse one, some beautiful imagery. It, it really takes, I think, what you know, John 21 says and puts you kind of right there on the seashore, doesn't it? Absolutely. And so you have to think about this. These guys, the majority of these seven men were experienced fishermen. This is what they had done for a living for years before the Lord called them to follow him. And they know, now I'm not a fisherman. I, I'm not a, I grew up though in a, in a home that had lots of people that loved to fish. And so one thing that I do know is that the best time to catch fish is at night. So here are Peter and the disciples and all night long, they've been fishing. And we're told in the gospel of John that they had fished all night long and they had caught nothing. And so here they are early in the morning, 
uh, getting ready to, to call it quits for the day. And they hear a man on the shore, just as the sun is starting to come up, they see this image maybe on the seashore. And this fellow on the shore calls out and says, hey, do you have any fish? In, in fact, the Greek there is very specific, Rob. In the Greek, it says, you haven't caught any fish, have you, children? So it's expecting a no response. In other words, this person on the shore knows that their labors have been fruitless over the night. And so they call out and they say, no, we haven't. And then at the end, Dudley Smith brings in this, uh, this example. He says, he hails the boat of weary men, bids them cast their net again. Now imagine you've been fishing all night long. You just put your gear away. And some guy shows up on the shore and says, hey, you haven't caught anything, I see. And you say, no, it was a pretty miserable night. And then he says, hey, you know, you're fishing in the wrong place. Why don't you try over here instead? But we're going to see the results of this. And he does. He just kind of paints this, this opening scene in the first verse of, the dawn breaking, the, the weary men that have been fishing all night long, and this man. Now, we're told in verse 1 it's Jesus. But in John chapter 21, the disciples don't know this is Jesus. Not yet. So miracle number one here, Rob, is the fact that Jesus, boom, shows up on the seashore just where the disciples happen to be fishing all night long in order to have an interaction with them, in order to teach them one more time and to, to, to give them a lesson for, for this life. You know, you'll wonder too, it, it talks about the weariness that they had of the fishing. And you wonder if that's a picture, well, and it probably is a picture of something kind of bigger. And I, and I kind of alluded to this a little bit, this, this in-between time that they're in, right? And so Jesus has risen. They know that he's risen. But they've been through a lot too. I mean, more than we could probably imagine, you know, you know, we rehearse it, of course, every year, all of the events of, of Holy Week. And, but I mean, to be there and to go through it and, you know, to see Jesus betrayed and crucified, but then risen again, but still kind of maybe being afraid and, you know, all of that. And then Jesus is risen, but he's not right there with them where they could see him anyway. And so it's like, well, what do we do? Well, I guess we'll go back to what we did before. And now we're not all that successful, you know? So what does the resurrection mean then? It didn't make this whole fishing thing any easier. And so that weariness seems to be more than just the fact that they didn't catch fish. And they didn't know when Jesus was going to show up again. Well, that's right. Remember the angels on Easter? Right. The angels told the women, go tell the disciples to return to Galilee. There he will see them. We've been told that they Jesus appeared to them on Easter Sunday. He appeared to them one week later in the same upper room when Thomas was there. Two times. And now this is the third time. Now they've returned to Galilee. But imagine just twiddling your thumbs and waiting. When's he going to show up? When's he going to show up? When's he, is he going to show up? Is he going to show up? You know, all of these questions. And you're right. In maybe a little bit of Peter-like fashion, a little bit of impatience. Peter says, hey, I'm tired of waiting around. I'm going to go fishing. And what does the Lord do? He appears to him in his daily activities once again. He reminds him, Peter, it's not just in the upper room. It's not just in your home, but throughout all of your activities throughout life, 
I am there with you. And he's preparing them for his ascension. Even though he's going to be in heaven, he assures his disciples, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And I think Jesus is preparing them for that. And as you pointed out, to bring them through all of this weariness of life and to see the light at the end of the tunnel, to remember that even though Jesus is not physically going to be with them in the same way that he had been for three years, he would promise his blessing. He would be with them in order to encourage and support and sustain them through the weariness while we wait his final return. We end with uh, verse one. They're going to, uh, Jesus bids them to cast their net again. And so they're going to do it and we'll see what happens. More miracles to come here. So uh, stanza two. So they cast and all their heaving cannot haul their catch aboard. John in wonder turns, perceiving, cries aloud, it is the Lord. Peter waits for nothing more, plunges in to swim ashore. So a couple of things here. First of all, I wonder what it is that kind of opens John's eyes here when that makes him cry out, it is the Lord. And there's something that we could actually look back to because this is a familiar thing that the disciples had seen. And then we see a little bit of Peter being Peter. Again, this is helpful to remember some of our other biblical history and stories that we have in the accounts of the Gospels. In the Gospels, it says, cast your net on the right side of the boat. Now, think about this, Rob. You know, you've been fishing on the left side all night long, and this guy shows up and he says, hey, you're fishing on the wrong side of the boat. Oh, there's fish on that side, but not on the other side? From a logical standpoint, this doesn't make any sense at all. Right. But they do it. And what we're told here that all their heaving cannot haul their catch aboard. Now, the, the Gospels say they cast and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. So there's so many fish there in the net. Now, remember, they hadn't caught a thing all night long. And all they do is they pop their net in on the other side of the boat, and there are so many fish that they can't get it into the boat. Now, what is it that causes John to say, hey, 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 we've seen this before. Well, John was out on the Sea of Galilee three years earlier when the Lord called to him, and they were fishing, and they hadn't caught anything all night long. And the Lord comes along, and he says, hey, uh, cast your net again. And they do, and we're told that there were so many fish that they needed to call their partners from the shore, and they came out and they filled their nets too, and both boats were sinking because of the number of fish. Now, John remembers that vividly because it was right after that that the Lord said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so as soon as John sees these nets full of fish, he knows who that guy is on the shore. And I love the way that Dudley brings this out when he describes John's reaction. We're told in verse 7 of John 21, that disciple therefore whom Jesus loved, which is John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. We might envision this as John reaching over there to Peter and, and whispering in his ear, it's Jesus, it's Jesus on the shore. Right. But look at how Dudley Smith does it. He says, John in wonder 
turns, perceiving, understanding, cries aloud, it is the Lord. He's so excited because this is what they've been waiting for. This is who they've been waiting for. So Peter then, he doesn't wait for the boat to get into shore. We're told that he puts on his outer garment and he jumps into the water and swims to shore, not waiting for the rest of the disciples to come on in. So we have the impetuous Peter, once again, like you indicated, but right. a beautiful picture of, of the desire for the disciples to see the Lord. And all of the, those memories that we've seen in the gospels in their time and interactions with Jesus that made it so crystal clear. This wasn't just any guy on the shore. This was Jesus. And so here's miracle number two. We have Jesus appearing on the shore in verse one, out of nowhere. Number two, the great miraculous catch of fish on the seashore would be the second of a long string of miracles in this account. Yeah, it's it really is such a beautiful picture as you pointed how you know Dudley Smith brings this all out and yeah I mean I mean I have to admit as as looking at this you know it, it's it really makes you think that yeah John probably did just shout this it probably just he he's he's thinking and he's like wait a second I remember this but it's also telling too I think of you mentioned that that account in Luke chapter five, where Jesus is calling the disciples, he's calling them to be fishers of men. And in a way, it seems like there's still that same call of, yeah, I still have work for you guys to do. That's not over with yet. Um, you're not going to go back to just being fishermen. You're going to keep that, keep on with that work of being fishers of men. And so, um, and Again, that same reminder that as you go along with this, I'm going to be with you in a different way, but I'm going to be with you the whole time. So we're going to get into stanza three then, and in stanza three, we're going to see uh, a little bit of a picture of Jesus again as that servant. He's, it's amazing, you know, he, he's, he, he's risen, he is... He, he's accomplished every bit of our salvation that does not stop him from being that servant. And so he's still uh, serving them as we'll see. And then um, we see again, more of that hope that the disciples can have through their interaction here with Jesus before we see then the transition uh, to what we go through or what, what we experience in stanzas four and five. So we'll get to stanza three. Charcoal embers brightly burning, bread and fish upon them laid. Jesus stands at days returning in his risen life arrayed. As of old, his friends to greet him, here is breakfast, come and eat. Stanza three. Now here's another example of a miracle. And there are others that are certainly included in the text from John chapter 21, but where did Jesus get the fish? They didn't notice a fire earlier on. So here they come to shore. They've pulled this great, huge cache of fish to the shore. And Jesus says, hey, I've got, I've got breakfast on for you. There's a fire there. So from John chapter 21, we're told that when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Now, this takes us back to the feeding of the 5,000. 
Right. The fish and the bread that Jesus took and he multiplied miraculously to feed the thousands of people. And then Jesus says, you know, interestingly, this is different, Rob. In the feeding of the 5,000, they had just a couple of fish or the feeding of the 4,000, either one, a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread. And Jesus multiplies it and gives it to all of these people. But notice in this case, in verse 10 of John chapter 21, Jesus, there's fish and bread laid there ready for them to eat. But he says, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. In other words, the disciples are invited to participate in the miracle Yes, Jesus is the servant. Yes, Jesus has the fire already ready to go. He's got food there for them. But he says, bring some of those fish that I have just given to you. I have given you a gift. I want you to use that gift in the service for others. Beautiful picture of, once again, the beautiful Lutheran doctrine of vocation. Ah, yes. God gives us these gifts. And he invites us to participate in his kingdom work using those gifts for his name, to his glory, for the service of our neighbor. So there's this, there's this beautiful picture of, of assisting in the work. We don't assist in our salvation, Rob, but we do have the privilege of joining in the work and the service of the spreading of the gospel. The Lord has called us as fishers of men to take those gifts and to utilize them in his kingdom work. So a third miracle, and you get this beautiful summary of this at the very end of, of Timothy Dudley's verse here, as of old, his friends to greet, reminding of us of how the Lord has served his disciples. One of the passages that comes to mind is Jesus when he told his disciples, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he washed his disciples' feet in the upper room. He demonstrated service to his disciples. Here he is, his friends to greet. And he says, what? Here is breakfast. Come and eat. What a beautiful picture of the example that Jesus gives us as he now has accomplished our salvation and the salvation of all people. That work is done. He did it all. But now he says, come. I want you to be a participant in the work of spreading that message of salvation to those who are around us. Yeah, that doctrine of vocation, so, so very important because, you know, we get the privilege of being sort of the hands and feet of, of, of Jesus. How does, how does the Lord provide for us? Everything that we have, he provides for us, but for the most part, he provides for us through others, th through us providing for others, through others providing, you know, for us. That's that's why the Lord gathers us into congregations. One of the big, well, the big reason why he gathers us into congregations and why that congregational life is so important. Uh, he, he serves us by us really serving one another and uh, such such an important thing, and it emphasizes too, and it's going to be important to remember now as we transition to kind of the, you know, what are we supposed to do now in light of this? We know that the Savior is risen, but we're waiting for him to return, and we haven't seen him with our eyes yet. What do we do? What's the purpose that the Lord has? Why doesn't the Lord just take us home to be with him when, when we're saved? And that reason is because he has this work for us to do uh, and the privilege of being able to do that in thanks, 
in in thanks for all that he's done for us yeah and like you said the verses four and five are going to get into a lot of application what does this mean for us what do how do we benefit from this and and dudley smith is going to bring that home really clearly in these next two verses okay so let's go to stanza four then Christ is risen, grief and sighing, sins and sorrows fall behind. Fear and failure, doubt denying, full and free forgiveness find. All the soul's dark night is past, morning breaks in joy at last. Rob, we had talked a little bit about the fact that there is part of this account that isn't included specifically in this hymn. And that is the familiar account of Jesus's reinstatement of Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you, do you even like me, Peter? And Peter's response to that. And, and we get a little bit of that in this verse. And here's the application for us. Jesus has been raised from the dead. So what's the, what does that mean? Grief and sighing Sins and sorrows fall behind, fear and failure, doubt, denying, there's Peter, the denial, mm -hmm. full and free forgiveness find. What does Jesus tell Peter? Tend my sheep, Peter, feed my sheep. This is what the Lord calls us to do. Yes, just like Peter, we have all kinds of failures. And we've made all kinds of mistakes. And there have been times that we've doubted. There have been times that we've denied our Savior when we've, we've had and been given the opportunity to witness to him. And what does the Lord do? He comes to us and he continues to say, feed my sheep. I send you out. I'm, I'm giving you this great catch of fish. You are now fishers of men. I'm bringing you into service in my kingdom. And so all of the things that many times hinder us from that work or say, you know, the devil uses and says, Rob, you're not worthy of being a servant of Jesus because you failed. Or Nathaniel, you made this huge mistake in the past. Jesus can't accept you. You're not worthy of being his witness. The Lord says, don't listen to what the devil has to say. Those sins, I have paid their debt in full. You are mine. And I send you out with that message of forgiveness, not only for you, but for others around you. And so the grief, the sin, the sorrow, the fear, the failure, the doubt, the denying, all of that, Jesus says, hey, come, come, you are mine and you are my servant. You are my ambassador. You are my witness to the world. It's, it's such a beautiful way, isn't it? How in all of these post-resurrection appearances, how Jesus really expresses in such beautiful ways the forgiveness that he's won for them. And you think of those, those disciples, they all scattered. Peter denies him, which is why that threefold restoration that you were just talking about. But what does Jesus say? He he doesn't come to them and say, hey, I'm back and now I'm coming to get you because you guys denied me or, well, denied or, and, and ran away and all of that. He says very often, peace be with you, right? He says that the first couple of times. He says here, come and have breakfast. Um, and he emphasizes to them, yes, you guys are part of that whole world that is forgiven. That forgiveness, that is there, full and free. 
no matter what you find in that list, no matter what sins you find in any other list that you can make, those are all forgiven, which is why the beginning part of that stanza, the grief and the sighing and the sins and the sorrow, those are all things that fall behind. doesn't mean that life in this world is going to be easy, as we see with the disciples fishing and, and doing so unsuccessfully all that night, but Christ is risen. And that changes everything because it changes our relationship with God. We are right with God now through what Jesus did. And that's why, you know, at the very end, morning breaks in joy at last. There's that joy in the end because all the soul's dark night is past. That's what we were trapped in, right? And John, of course, um, in, in his gospel, loves to use that light and darkness in other places as well. Uh, so it's beautiful how Dudley Smith brings that out there. The soul's dark night, night is past, morning breaks in joy at last. We have full, free forgiveness through our risen Savior. And that, while it doesn't make everything in this world easy, in fact, in some ways it makes it harder, it changes everything because it changes eternity. And when we get into the fifth verse now, Dudley Smith is going to bring this around and, and he's going to point out that this is not just true for Peter, but it's true for you, Rob. It's true for me. It's true for our listeners. It's, you know, it's true for every one of us throughout the generations. The truth of the resurrection gives us confidence in every generation. And that's the beautiful summary then that we get to in this last verse. So stanza five. Morning breaks and Jesus meets us, feeds and comforts, pardons still. As his faithful friends, he greets us, partners of his work and will. All our days on every shore, Christ is ours forevermore. So one of the things that I'd like you to pay attention to in this last verse is the change in the pronouns. Yes. Because up until this last verse, we've been talking about them and they. And now it's us. We've got this, this second person. We are involved in this. Morning breaks and Jesus meets us. Feeds and comforts, pardon still, as his faithful friends. He greets us, partners of his work and will. All our days on every shore. Christ is ours forevermore. Here's the application to every generation. Just as Jesus appears to his disciples, these seven men on the shores of Galilee, and he gives them the assurance of forgiveness of sins and the truth and the confidence of his resurrection, that promise is also for us today and for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Jesus meets us. That resurrection appearance wasn't only to give confidence to Peter and Nathaniel. It was for us. He says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to assure you of the comfort of that relationship with God that is now reconciled because of Christ's death and resurrection. And not only does he comfort us in our sins and our failures, but he also says, Rob, Nathaniel, I want you to be partners in my work today. You mm -hmm. are the ones to go out, not just the apostles of the first century, but every generation of my people that have been redeemed, I send them out, partners of his work and will. In other words, we go out with the same confidence that Peter and James and John had, that the Lord will be with us. Christ 
is ours. All our days on every shore, no matter where we go, no matter where we serve, Christ is ours forevermore. The truth of the resurrection does not fade. It does not disappear. It does not go away. It cannot be taken away. That truth of the resurrection is ours forever. And as you pointed out, we still live in a sinful world. But the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It changes the hope that is ours and why we go out and serve our Savior because of the love that Christ has for others who are lost in sin and unbelief as well. I think there's also a wonderful reminder in this stanza that the Lord continues to deliver his gifts to us. So from uh, that, that second line, as his faithful friends, he greets us. And that takes us back to the, the same way that he greets the disciples, right? And there he is to deliver those gifts. You know, in this case, it's just breakfast, but, you know, it shows something more. And the Lord is there to deliver us those gifts even now through his word, through his sacraments, where he's there strengthening our faith, giving us the forgiveness of sins over again. And that's, you know, all of the, it's, it's the motivation and really the power behind then our being those partners in his work and will. Uh, Christ is ours forevermore. What a wonderful ending to the hymn. And uh, that's, that really sums it all up, you know, in the end, right? That's the result of the resurrection, that ongoing result. Uh, and that result goes forevermore beyond, you know, even when this world is destroyed, because, uh, you know, when that happens, we're in the new heavens and, and the new earth still with Christ. He's still ours forever and ever. Any final thoughts then on the hymn? It's a different Easter hymn. The way yeah. that a lot of times we look at these Easter hymns, it's hard to describe because a lot of our Easter hymns are full of not the story of the resurrection, but the implications of the resurrection. Right. And while this certainly, it brings out the implications in the last two verses, it is more historical in nature. And, and I love the way it tells the story. We learn by stories. We love stories. But this isn't just a story. This is a real historical event that has meaning for us still today. And the way that he weaves together this somewhat unfamiliar resurrection appearance and then shows how that resurrection appearance is just as meaningful for you and for me today in the fact that the Lord sends us out as fishers of men and the fact that his resurrection is just as true in our lives today as it was 2000 years ago is so important for us as New Testament Christians to know that the promise of Jesus given to the first century apostles is also the promise that he leaves with us. I will be with you always. My resurrection promises are yours just as they were those first century believers. And, and that is a beautiful truth that doesn't only need to be sung during the Easter season, Rob, but right. throughout the church year, we need to, that reminder. Every Sunday is a mini celebration of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it's important for us to remember that. That's why the church celebrated and worshiped on Sunday, because they were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so the Easter season isn't seven weeks long or six weeks long. It's 53 weeks long. 
we get we get to celebrate or oh, 52 or 53 depending on how long the year is but some years do have 53 it, they, yes. they do sometimes we do we get 53 opportunities to celebrate the resurrection of jesus in a year and that's what this hymn reminds me of is that that this joy is throughout the year and it is true for us today just as it was then can't help but think in in hearing you say that about you know what Paul says in in First Corinthians fifteen, how he talks about look if there's no resurrection, essentially you're wasting your time being a Christian, but Christ is raised from the dead and that impacts everything and that's why you know that's that's why just as you said these celebrations that we have each and every Sunday our celebrations of Easter and this Easter hope that is so beautifully brought out on this hymn is something for us to take with us all of our days.
thanks, Nathaniel, for joining us today for this hymn study. And uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, we, we pray that you were encouraged, of course, by this hymn and that the Lord would continue to bless you throughout this Easter and resurrection season. Lord be with you. We invite you to join us every week for another episode of Burden and Blessing Podcast, where we will continue to proclaim Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior for sinners. Until next week, take comfort in the fact that God is your rock and ever-present help in trouble.